For decades, the National Cybersecurity Protection System, known as Einstein, has formed the center of federal cyber defenses. Now the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is looking to move beyond Einstein with a near half-billion-dollar program in its latest budget request. Here with more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And they're asking for almost $500 million for something they called CAD. What is their plan for the future of Einstein, Justin? Yeah, they're seeking about $425 million in the 2024 budget for this cyber analytics and data system, uh, better known as CADS. Maybe they'll come up with something a little more catchy in the future. But CADS is supposed to be a uh, what they call a scalable analytic environment that integrates different data sets and provides analysts with visualization tools and other capabilities. The budget explains how this is all part of the restructuring of the the Einstein program. It's been in place, as you said, since 2003 to really defend federal agency networks from cyber threats. Chris Comiskey is a former senior official at DHS, and he said the budget really answers some big questions about the future of Einstein. The notion was that Einstein eventually would have to turn into something else. And I think we have our answer now. I think that the short answer is that Einstein or NCPS as we have known it in the federal space for the last 15 to 20 years is turning into something much different, which is a warehouse capability with huge amounts of data that are being collected from multiple sources that becomes an engine uh, for analysis that will hopefully lead to quicker response and detection of threats by CISA. And so Einstein then will still monitor federal networks as it has been. They're up to Einstein, I think version three is the current, but there sounds like they're adding to that with new data sources other than their own sensors. So what kind of data are they adding? Yeah, I asked CISA that question. Eric Goldstein, CISA's Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity reached out. He said they're gonna integrate public and commercial data feeds CISA's own sensors, such as endpoint detection and response, the protective domain name system sensors that kind of monitors web traffic across federal networks, CISA's vulnerability scanning service, which has thousands of enrolled organizations across the country, and then other data that is shared by public and private partners. And that's growing with, you know, new incident response requirements that critical infrastructure groups will soon have to start following. So it's supposed to be a single data repository for CISA's cyber analysts which is important. Uh, Goldstein told me right now, a lot of those analysts have to manually kind of compare data from one source to another to kind of figure out what might be going on out in the cyber world. And this new system is intended to kind of give them a single place to go for multiple data streams to then compare it. In many ways, this is a mirror of what we're hearing a lot of agencies talking about doing, which is to gain a earlier handle on what might be threatening their networks by going to public data sources when they buy software. The whole SBOM thing has to do with comparing the SBOM with known vulnerability databases. So this kind of trend we're seeing across the government. But Einstein also kind of got knocked because it didn't detect Solar Winds campaign a couple of years ago. Is that part of the impetus here? It's a little bit of a story here. I think the Einstein program, it was actually noted even before the SolarWinds campaign that one of its limiting factors is that it has to have seen and analyzed malicious traffic before it can block it rather than being able to actually identify new malicious traffic, zero days or supply chain attacks like SolarWinds. And that shortcoming really became a major focus for policymakers in the wake of the SolarWinds campaign. CISA officials defended Einstein. They said it, it worked as intended and wasn't intended to detect that kind of attack. 
But a OIG report, an inspector general report that came out earlier this month, kind of footstamped the whole debate by saying, well, the SolarWinds campaign demonstrated the need for something like CADS, better network visibility and threat identification technology. Here's Comiskey again. There was a lot of thought before SolarWinds around, you know, what comes next after Einstein. I think that was only accelerated by SolarWinds because on the Hill, they're like, well, why didn't Einstein catch this? The answer was, well, it's really not designed to detect and then have the tools in place to then act accordingly. And so now this particular system that they're redesigning comes in the wake of solar winds and will put them in a much better position, I think, to do you know, critical analysis in a timely fashion that will help them act more swiftly. And will Einstein go away or will it live on in its core function of monitoring networks and still giving warnings of things happening now, zero days and so on? Yeah, so portions of Einstein, uh, including the core infrastructure analytics and information sharing functions will transition to this new CADS program that will then be built out from there. And then the Einstein intrusion detection and intrusion prevention capabilities will remain in place at least through 2024. CISER is requesting another $67 million to continue operating those tools in 2024. But CISA also has some uh, plans to make there in terms of decommissioning the legacy Einstein email filtering tools and transitioning to commercial services, and then also taking into account agencies' expanded use of cloud technologies. That's another big intrusion detection question that CISA has to answer in the coming year. I give them till 2027, realistically. If they say 24, it's going to be 28. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'm getting cynical in my old age. And is there an acquisition plan? How are they going to spend this $425 million? If they get well, it. we don't know that yet. Right. If they get it, they still have to convince lawmakers of their plan. Congress has is, is generally been amenable to what CISA has put forward with uh, a lot of their cyber programs. So we'll see what they do here. But actually inside the building, inside DHS, they're moving toward a program accountability and risk management review, which is kind of when big DHS rubber stamps CISA's plan for CADS. And that's supposed to happen by the end of this month. And then we'll see what their plan is for acquiring it. Uh, Comiskey told me he thinks it'll be have some heavy involvement from industry. Another industry source noted to me that this is going to come with a lot of engineering and software development tools. That's kind of what this new CADS program is intended to be, is kind of a hub for when CISA analysts say they need this new tool or analysis software. That's what this CADS program will provide. So it'll be interesting for industry to track this as well. $429 million, that'll make it a market all by itself, really, for a lot of small businesses and some of those big integrators. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks so much. Hey, you got it, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. 
It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and 
bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) 
So that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, I the way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.